You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Nikhil Smith. And I'm Christina Loeb. President Obama will be giving the first State of the Union address of his second term tonight. The White House says this address will focus on the economy, unlike his recent inaugural address, which centered on social agendas. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Lauren Crawford reports on what one political scientist anticipates from the president's speech, as well as the Republican response from Florida U.S. Senator Marco Rubio. Later this evening, the president will address the American people. University of Florida political science professor and chair Michael Martinez expects tonight to be interesting in terms of the predicted contrast between President Obama's inaugural address and tonight's State of the Union address. Martinez says he thinks immigration and gun control will be among the top subjects in the president's address. He also weighs in on the importance of tonight to the president's administration over the next four years. I think if the president is going to get anything done, he knows that he in this term, he knows it's going to have to be fairly quick. Uh, it'll probably be this year. Um, and that's why I think he's going to hopefully uh, focus on things that are doable in this speech. Um, so I think it'll be important in terms of setting the agenda for uh, for the term because, um, you know, this is the year to do it. Next year we're going to get into midterm election years already, and then after that um, all of the potential presidential candidates will be coming out of the woodwork, and all of a sudden we'll be focused on the next presidential election, uh, believe it or not. Marco Rubio was chosen to represent the Republican Party in its response to the State of Union. He will be the first Hispanic Republican to counter the State of Union in both English and Spanish. Martinez says this was done to change the tone of the GOP. I think it's a sign that the Republicans in Congress, particularly in the Senate, because it, it was McConnell who got the pick, who got to speak tonight, recognize that um, there needs to be a change in tone uh, for the Republicans. I think they, you know, again, they realize um, not getting, you know, uh, getting such a paltry share of the Latino vote and the Asian American vote, frankly, in the last presidential election. Um, they realize that they're going to be stuck in a, in, a, in a minority unless they can at least change the tone and change the message. Martinez additionally shares what he expects Marco Rubio to discuss in his counter to the president's address. Rubio is a, is a leading proponent within the Republican Party of immigration reform, for example, so I expect he'll lay that out. Um, but he also and, uh, will sort of lay out the principal differences that the Republicans have with the president. Um, so I think it's, it's on, on both sides, as the president kind of laid out his principles in the inaugural address, um, I think in the State of the Union he may scale some of those back and focus on things that are doable. Um, I think Rubio has to do both, and, or will probably try to do both in this speech, to lay out the principles where, uh, where Republicans disagree with the president on, but then also focus on, um, but say, where, um, where he thinks that uh, they can come to some, uh, some agreement on a limited set of issues. There will also be a separate Tea Party response from Senator Ron Paul. For Florida's 89.1, I'm Lauren Crawford reporting. We're now joined in the studio by Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Stephanie DiNardo. So, Stephanie, I hear there is quite a development in the Cabot Copper Superfund site. 
Yes, Nikhil, after three decades, the contaminated Cabot Copper Superfund in Gainesville might finally be cleaned up. The former wood treatment plant, comprising 140 acres, contaminated the property soil and the aquifer, as well as proved a serious health risk to the residents of the Stephen Foster neighborhood located there. On Thursday, Beezer East Incorporated, the owner of the property, made a consent decree with the federal government to clean up the site. Chris Bird, director of Alachua County Environmental Protection, says that this contract is a major milestone. They are in agreement on a um, cleanup and a schedule for cleanup. Um, the, the reason it's filed in federal court is to make sure that the consent decree, which is really the kind of the contractual um, agreement between EPA and Beezer that that can be legally enforced. And so, you know, this, this is a, a significant um, event in terms of this long saga of, um, you know, that started really 30 years ago, actually longer for some people. Bird adds that this cleanup agreement is only the beginning, but it's still an important step in the process. We feel like at least what we've got now, it's, a, it's, it's certainly a start. And I think the parts of the plan, such as trying to contain the Florida aquifer contamination under the site and, and keeping that from migrating toward the city's well-filled drinking water supply, um, removing soil from people's yards that that have you know dioxin and elevated level of dioxin in their in their yards, um, those are important steps. As a designated Superfund site, the law makes responsible parties responsible for cleanups. Bird says that this is the main reason why it has taken so long for Beaver East to come up to an agreement to pay $90 million for the cleanup. We feel like at least what we've got now, it's a, the downside of these um, responsible party funded cleanups is they tend to take longer. And, you know, this negotiation between EPA and Beezer is just an example of that. Um, you know, Beezer has an interest in not spending any more money than they have to. Um, EPA has an interest in not having to spend any of their own money because especially the way Congress has been treating them the last 10 or 15 years, they don't have enough money to clean these sites up themselves. So, you know, it, it really, it, it's, it's kind of the way it works. And I guess we are lucky in a sense that we do have um, we have a, a corporation that's got assets that's willing to go forward. In the past, residents in the Stephen Foster neighborhood were concerned that the toxins from the land could cause cancer, while researchers for the Alachua County Health Department found no higher cancer rates when comparing this area to others. This is still a major concern for the residents, but it isn't necessarily considered in the cleanup plan. There's other parts that really aren't included in the agreement, and I know uh, we have some homeowners that live in the neighborhood that are really concerned about the inside of their houses and whether they need to be concerned about, um, you know, contamination inside their houses. The agreement does not really address that. Um, I think one reason is because there's no federal standard to define what what is an acceptable level of of certain chemicals within people's houses. And anyway, EPA and Beezer did not include that in the, in the cleanup plan. Um, but I know that's still an issue that's, that's of concern for some people. 
The next step in the consent decree process is to place a notice with the Federal Register in the public of the agreement, and people will be able to comment on it for 30 days after its release. While comments are taken into consideration when the degree is reviewed after 30 days, Bird says that there really isn't much that people can do to change it. When it comes down to it, this is a negotiation between the federal government and Beezer. And, you know, we can provide comments, we can provide suggestions, but we're really not at the bargaining table when directly when it comes to working out these terms. Um, we, do, we do feel, I know the, the county and the city feel like it's made a difference, um, you know, the, the citizen participation, the local elected officials' participation, the encouragement to get the congressional delegation involved, um, all of that has, has helped. If we hadn't have done that, um, I don't think we'd be, we'd be um, announcing, you know, such a robust cleanup. Once a federal judge in Gainesville approves the decree, the remediation work begins. Rick Hutton, supervising engineer at Gainesville Regional Utilities, describes the actual cleanup methods Beezer East will employ. What they're going to do is employ some technologies to basically solidify the creosote that's in the ground there. And uh, I know that, you know, from our perspective and others too, you know, the ideal case would be to actually dig that stuff up and remove it. Uh, the problem is, is that's not really a, a very cost-effective way of doing it. Uh, in fact, the cost of actually digging it up would be on the order of about $500 million, which we would still like them to do that, but I think uh, realistically there are technologies where you can solidify that material in place so that it will not continue to contaminate groundwater. Besides solidifying the contaminated areas, Hutton says the company needs to contain the contaminated groundwater. The other uh, major thing that needs to be done is um, what we call groundwater containment, where you basically, if you know there's uh, contamination in the groundwater, you put in a, a pumping well that pumps that contaminated water out, uh, takes it out of the ground clean and cleans it uh, so that the contamination that's in the groundwater can't continue to spread. That's a very important thing. And there is some uh, containment wells that are uh, in operation at the site now. We do feel like there's probably may need to be some more uh, as part of the long-term cleanup, but the wells that, w that are in place right now um, are a very important part of, uh, of containing that contamination. The Environmental Protection Agency expects notices of the consent decree for the public to appear in the Federal Register in the Gainesville Sun around February 18th. For Florida's 89.1 WUFC-FM, I'm Stephanie DiNardo in Gainesville. Opponents of the federal health care law have been dominating state legislative panels on the issue in recent weeks, but Monday supporters got their say. Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports the Florida Hospital Association is one of the most prominent groups calling on state lawmakers to extend Medicaid coverage to more low-income Floridians. Sarasota Memorial Hospital serves a high number of uninsured and low-income Floridians. According to President and CEO Gwen McKenzie, the hospital faced more than $84 million worth of unpaid bills last year. Without extension of coverage, Florida health care providers will be financially penalized with no opportunity to replace those lost revenues with additional Medicaid payments. 
According to the Safety Net Hospital Alliance's website, Sarasota Memorial has an annual budget of around $550 million. But as McKinsey explains, under federal budget cuts coming down through the federal health care law, that budget is going to shrink. Sarasota Memorial's cuts will be $145 million over the next decade. Without the extension of Medicaid coverage, Florida providers will be footing the bill for other states which choose to extend the coverage for their citizens. But opting in will result in an infusion of additional health spending into our state. For Sarasota County, the estimated positive impact is $362 million over 10 years. And that's a net gain. Federal cuts to programs like Medicare and other pots of money to reimburse hospitals for treating the uninsured are coming down in order to fund the Medicaid expansion. Hospitals agreed to the cuts because, as Tallahassee Memorial Hospital President Mark O'Brien explains, getting something is better than getting nothing at all. Because now there's no revenue coming in for that patient population. Even though Medicaid is a less-than-cost proposition, we get paid less than the cost of those services. It's still payment that we're not receiving now. Although many insiders believe Florida will ultimately expand the program, there's no guarantee it will happen. Some state officials are concerned over costs. Estimates range from hundreds of millions to billions of dollars to cover the additional people that could be added into the program. But Joan Alker with the Georgetown Policy Center says those costs don't tell the real story. And a very comprehensive study of Oregon um, that had a kind of very star-studded list of economists who conducted that Um, found that their adult expansion resulted in improved financial security, uh, medical bankruptcy is a leading cause of bankruptcy, uh, improvements in health status, access to regular sources of care, and access to prescription drugs. Very significant and dramatic improvements in those areas. It's not just cost that has state officials, mainly Republicans, concerned. They're also worried that increasing coverage will increase demand and that there aren't enough physicians to meet those needs. If lawmakers decide to increase access to Medicaid, Governor Rick Scott, who opposed the Affordable Care Act, would still have to sign off on it. Scott says he is waiting for the feds to decide on Florida's request to turn Medicaid into a managed care-style program before making up his mind whether to back the Medicaid expansion. The feds have already approved a managed care system for people in long-term care. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. It will now be a bit easier for Shan's patients and family members to commute between their homes and the hospital. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Xuan Tian reports on how much of an impact this new facility will have on the Shan's community. Sarasota Memorial Hospital serves a high number of uninsured and low-income Shan's Hospital at UF is trying to extend care to patients and their families by building a lounging facility to accommodate them. The facility will provide housing for 150 people at the cost of the market rate. Vice President of Facilities for Shans, Brad Chalid, says the idea of building the facility first came from concerned patients. We've heard from patients for a number of years that it's difficult to stay a distance from the hospital while they're visiting their loved ones who are uh, in the ICU or undergoing some type of procedure. And so we did a survey this last year of the number of patients that come in from over two hours away, which we felt was a reasonable drive distance that you'd probably not go back home. And then we also did an informal internal interview with our patients as well to ask them if they had a 
facility like this, would they use it? And both of those surveys came back very strong uh, in the affirmative. So we uh, started uh, the concept of being able to do this. Senior West President for Health Affairs and President of the UF Shands Health System, David Guzek, describes what the situation is usually like for patients who travel a long way to the hospital. Patients are in the hospital on average for about five days, but some can be longer than that. And so if they travel from a few hours away or more, which they often do because we're a tertiary referral center, um, they need a place to stay while their family member is a patient in the hospital. So there isn't any place in walking distance. There isn't any place that has a uh, suite-like arrangement with a little kitchenette, uh, except at some distance from the hospital. The facility will be built on the former site of the Rash Lake Motel off Southwest 16th Avenue. Talit says its close distance is convenient for patients' families or caretakers to go to the hospital. Guzek also adds they're happy to make the hospital more comforting to both the patients and their caretakers. We're pleased to have this opportunity. It, it adds to the overall uh, experience of patients and our families to try to make things as, as, uh, as uh, comfortable and as welcoming as possible. The launching facility plan was approved by the Shands Board of Directors in January with a budget of about $30 million. Currently, the 40-year-old Rush Lake Motel has just been demolished. The construction of the new building will begin in the fall and will last about a year. The guest house will be open at the end of 2014. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT, I'm Shrentian in Gainesville. This month marks the one-year anniversary of the death of Trayvon Martin. The unarmed Sanford teenager was fatally shot by neighborhood watch volunteer George Zimmerman. When Zimmerman goes on trial for second-degree murder this summer, he's expected to use Florida's stand-your-ground law at, as his defense. The Tampa Bay Times recently published a comprehensive database of Florida stand-your-ground cases. Dahlia Colon from member station WUSF in Tampa spoke with Times Investigations editor Chris Davis about the project. Can you give us a little background on what the Stand Your Ground law is, just so we're all starting off on the same page? Yeah, well, the Stand Your Ground law was passed in Florida to sort of expand our ability to claim self-defense. Primarily, it allows people to get out of their homes and still claim self-defense uh, when they use deadly force. So if you're anywhere that you are allowed to be and someone is threatening your life, essentially, you can use deadly force to defend yourself without retreating. Now, let's talk about the investigation that you and your team completed at the Times. When did you start? How long did it take? And um, what were some of the key findings? Yeah, we spent about three months just going out and trying to identify stand your ground cases that existed basically in Florida. And what we found out was that the law was being used in ways that were never imagined by the people who passed it. Uh, it was being used by gang members who were sort of scheduling shootouts in the street. And then when they got arrested claiming, well, that guy started shooting first. Uh, it was also being used in cases that really were never envisioned, like people who were beating their neighbor's dog or a guy who had a bear, wild bear, wander into his yard and he shot it and got charged with, you know, killing an endangered species. And people 
of that nature were citing stand your ground as a defense. Wow, really? Yeah. So who do you find successfully is able to claim stand their ground as a defense? We spent a lot of time on this, and, and I think where we wound up was concluding that anything could be a stand your ground case. You can argue stand your ground in, in just about any circumstance. There's nothing to limit you. And in some cases, some seemingly bizarre cases, you can win that argument depending on what jury you have or what judge is in the room or how good your defense attorney is from one jurisdiction to the next, from one judge to the next, one prosecutor to the next. There were much different outcomes for very similar cases. There's a lot of talk in the news, obviously, about gun control. Can you elaborate a little bit on how guns apply to the Stand Your Ground law, where most of the cases involving guns? Probably the majority of cases didn't involve guns. Now, when you get into fatal cases, then you're much more likely to have a gun involved. But there are many, many, many cases where people have cited Stand Your Ground for a little fist fight or, you know, some sort of shoving match that escalates and no one's killed, and in, in fact, sometimes people aren't even seriously injured. Chris, before I let you go, George Zimmerman's trial starts June 10th. What should we be looking out for in that trial? I've been asked this sort of question a lot recently about whether he's going to be successful in his arguments or not. It's really hard to predict. There are certainly cases like Zimmerman's that have been successful. I think it's definitely possible that he could win a stand-your-ground argument I think there's a lot of pressure right now sort of politically on everyone involved to not be overly lenient. It'll be really interesting to see how far his defense attorneys are pushing the stand your ground argument. Well, Chris Davis of the Tampa Bay Times, thank you so much for uh, breaking down Florida's stand your ground law for us. Thanks for having me. Florida is on the way to becoming the very first state in the country to regulate the use of drones for police work. Drones are a kind of remote-controlled aircraft that can be used for surveillance. In the past year, two of the state's largest police departments have bought drones. But as Ashley Lopez reports from member station WGCU, a Republican leader in the Florida Senate hopes to put some strict rules in place that would make it harder for police to use those drones. Republican State Senator Joe Negron of Palm City is known in the Florida legislature for his strict libertarian views. The powerful appropriations chair has spent much of his time in office on the lookout for what he sees as government intrusion. His latest concern, that the use of drones for police work might infringe on Florida residents' privacy rights. Negron said in a Senate Criminal Justice Committee meeting there needs to be restrictions in place. Like all technologies, there's good uses of technology and then there are not good uses of technology. And I think it's up to the legislature uh, not to just rely on courts to protect our individual liberties. Um, you know, drones are fine for killing terrorists in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but they shouldn't be used to monitor the activities of law-abiding Floridians. If Negron's bill becomes a law, agencies like Miami-Dade's police department will have to make some stricter guidelines for its drone program. The bill currently requires a search warrant for most surveillance, but allows for some looser guidelines for extreme cases like terrorism. But Miami-Dade Police Lieutenant Javier Sanchez says there's basically no need for Negron's bill, since drone programs like his are guided by a slew of other laws. There's already enough law and enough policy in place that this bill doesn't really change at all the, the capabilities of when law enforcement can use it. Sanchez says Miami-Dade's police force already takes search and seizure rights into account when using the drone. 
it's not in a public area, I still need to get that warrant. You know, I'm guided by law, whether it's state, federal, or local, and I'm also guided by the policies of the department. So, so the bill in itself isn't going to change any of that. In short, Lieutenant Sanchez says his department's program is already meant for limited use. But the American Civil Liberties Union of Florida spokesman Baylor Johnson says that might not always be the case. That's why the group is currently lobbying the legislature to pass Negron's bill. Unfortunately, what we've seen time and again uh, with surveillance technology is that it ends up being expanded uh, beyond the limited use that we're initially told it's going to be used for. Even though only two police departments in Florida have pursued a drone program, Johnson says now is the time to crack down. So what we see is this sort of ratcheting effect, is that as technology changes, it becomes increasingly easy for surveillance equipment to be expanded further and further into the public, uh, into, into surveilling public spaces. And as the inevitable problems arise, it's becoming harder and harder to scale things back. Orange County Sheriff Captain Michael Foulis said in a Florida Senate Community Affairs Committee meeting he would only support the bill if there was also an exception for crowd control included. The Florida Sheriff's Association shared similar concerns at the bill's hearing and is against the drone bill. However, Senator Negron's bill has already passed through two Senate committees. The House version has passed in one committee. In Fort Myers, I'm Ashley Lopez. Today marks the 12-year anniversary of the death of Gainesville Police Officer Scott Baird. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Maggie Schwartzman reports on how his life is still being remembered. In the early hours of the morning on February 12, 2001, Gainesville Police Officer Scott Baird received a call about a large metal cage blocking the road at Northwest 16th Terrace. While on the scene to investigate, then 17-year-old Ira Warren struck the cage with his car. The cage hit Baird and sent both Cage and Baird flying into his control car, killing the young officer. Every year since, family and friends hold a candlelight vigil to remember the tragic event. GPD officer and spokesman Ben Tobias says the vigil is a time to show that Baird is still in the hearts and minds of the community. Well, we come together as a community, as officers, as friends and family members of Scott. Um, it's something that's been done every year, number one, to show that we haven't forgotten about Officer Baird, um, to, to show that to the family and to show that to the community. Though responding to a call about moving an object out of the road wouldn't strike most people as overtly dangerous, Tobias says it's important that people are aware that any call to a police officer poses a certain amount of risk. We knew when we accepted this job that there's an inherent risk associated with it. But we do it every day because it's what we you know, feel like we're meant to do. But we, we have that in the back of our mind that the next call could be our very last call. We, you know, we, we train for the best and prepare for the worst, but we never think that a, a simple call just as you know, moving something out of the roadway is, go, is going to be that call that ends everything. You, know, you, just, you just don't think it. Though Warren was charged with speeding and a driver's license restriction, investigators never found out who put the metal cage in the road. Tobias says hundreds of people were interviewed at the time of the incident, but to no avail. He hopes the vigil will help the people come forward so Baird's family can finally get some closure. We also hold this every year to raise awareness for it, um, because still the people responsible for putting that batting cage in the middle of the road that night have never come forward. And we're hoping that in, in one of these years that we uh, you know, hold this event, that somebody will 
it will finally eat away enough of their conscience, you know, that they'll come forward and accept responsibility for their actions that night. The vigil will be held tonight at 7 p.m. on the 1900 block of Officer Scott M. Baird Boulevard, named for him after the accident. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Maggie Schwartzman in Gainesville. A measure that increases the campaign contribution limit from $500 to $10,000 is moving through the House. Florida Public Radio's Regan McCarthy reports lawmakers say the higher cap is a needed trade-off for more transparency. The measure would increase individual campaign contribution limits from $500 to $10,000. It's a hike some, like Representative Alan Williams, a Democrat from Tallahassee, are concerned about. Williams says it would favor incumbents, something he says the public has already made clear it doesn't want. We had an opportunity last year to vote, to, to discuss and debate a redistricting plan that the Constitution, that the people of the state of Florida said these redistricting maps should not favor incumbents. Well, by putting this at $10,000, I think that's what we're doing. We're giving incumbents even greater chances of re-election. And Jessica Lowe Minor with the League of Women Voters also raised concerns about the contribution limit. The League advocated for the current cap when it was established in 1991 in order to discourage pay-to-play practices within Florida politics. Um, and we believe that contribution limits are essential to preventing corruption and undue influence from tainting our political system. Although Minor did praise the House Ethics and Elections Committee for its transparency efforts. And Republican Representative Dennis Baxley of Ocala says he sees the new proposed higher tax caps as a trade-off for greater transparency. There's been a lot of contortions through these third-party ventures to, to try to affect elections. And I think we've just made it a shell game when we could really just back up and make it transparent and accountable by being very clear and quickly reporting who's investing in what. Williams proposed an amendment to keep the limit at $500 where it is today, but that amendment was voted down. The committee accepted a separate amendment proposed by Williams that repealed a provision in the bill to let candidates contribute money from their own campaign accounts to other candidates. HB 569 sponsor, Republican Representative Robert Shank of Spring Hill, says he appreciates Williams' efforts to work together to make the bill the best it can be. I'll give Representative Williams a lot of credit. He's uh, talked with me numerous times about um, ideas he's had for this bill and campaign finance in whole. The bill passed out of committee 10 to 2. It moves next to the House Appropriations Committee. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. A couple of lawmakers are trying to up the penalties for people who cause death from texting and driving. As Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports, the newly filed bill follows a similar measure moving through the Florida legislature calling for a ban on texting while driving in the state. Currently, Florida does not have a law banning texting while driving, which some lawmakers are hoping to change this year for the fourth year in a row. In the meantime, some lawmakers are working to ensure anyone who kills anybody while texting while driving goes to jail. Democratic Representative Ur Salzberg is sponsoring a bill that would make this standard penalty a vehicular homicide. The state of Florida is sending a message, and the message is we're no longer going to accept uh, texting and driving, and the consequences are if you kill someone, uh, you're going to go to jail for a long time. A penalty of vehicular homicide could result in between 15 to 30 years in jail and a $10,000 fine. The bill Senate sponsor is Democratic Senator Darren Soto of Orlando. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. 
a local film festival focused on sustainability has come to Gainesville for the fourth year in a row. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leah Harding spoke with the director of the festival and the director of a short film to hear what going green means to them. Going verde is a term a film director coined to help bring sustainability to the big screen, or at least a local screen, featured in Gainesville, Florida. Trish Riley is the director of Cinema Verde, or Cinema Green, used to spread environmental and individual sustainability through the art of film. Riley started this week-long event four years ago and continues through this Thursday night at Bow Diddley Plaza. This environmentalist, journalist, and author has been working for 20 years to inform the public about environmental concerns and solutions. Riley says her main goal is to reach the public by first influencing the government. Government officials who are involved in um, businesses that threaten our health and our environment will realize that conducting business that way is not okay. And they will step to the fore and say, it's time to change things, and they will do the right thing. Dulaney Ellis is the producer and director of a film that will be shown tonight. Ground Operations, From Battlefields to Farm Fields, is a documentary that focuses on the heroes of America and their heroic acts when they come home. Forty minute documentary about combat veterans who've been coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and are transitioning back to their civilian lives as organic farmers and ranchers. And it's just a really wonderful story about healing and restoration for their own lives and for the soil. Ellis says she hopes this film will not only unveil what veterans are doing for America off the battlefield, but will also help the public understand the core of what these individuals are made of. So most people don't know who veterans are and they have preconceived ideas about them. And these guys will just blow the lid off any stereotype you might have. <laughs> They're, they're really amazing men and women. Farming, according to Ellis, is a task that is only cut out for a select few. And she says that veterans seem to find a connection with cultivating the land. And it's too hard work for a lot of people, but people who've been in the military, it's just a wonderful marriage for them. Though farming may be tough, Ellis says the hardest thing for her while making this documentary was deciding when enough was enough. They're bringing all, all of that to their work. So for me, I, I, the hardest thing for me was I finally had to tell the nonprofit who was introducing me to veterans, I finally had to tell them to stop because everybody I met, I fell in love with and wanted to have in the film because they were all doing different things and they were all different personalities and they were all so amazing. I, it was like, stop, I can't have any more people in this film. <laughs> so it's the people. Ellis says her documentary presents a problem, but also an attainable solution. She hopes her short film will inspire others to focus on sustainability in their own lives. So many documentaries are depressing. It's like, here's another problem that you can probably do very little about. Well, this is a, Ground Operations is a story about solutions, and it's something you can do something about. The Cinema Verde Film Festival continues to grow and blossom and has sprouted into an annual event. To learn more about Going Verde or Going Green, visit cinemaverde.org. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leah Harding.
Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Christina Loeb. And I'm Nikkel Smith.